0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All righty, everyone. I am on the line with Xavier Amatria. Xavier is the co-founder and CTO of Curai. Xavier, welcome back to the Twimmel AI Podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Sam.
0: So for those that don't recognize the name, uh, Xavier was actually our third guest after switching to the interview format. So this was over three years ago. And so much has happened for both of us. Uh, we last had an opportunity to catch up at the AWS Remars conference. When was that, back in June or so? And I thought it makes sense to... Get Xavier back on the show to get a little bit of an update as to what he's been up to. So, when we last spoke to Xavier, he was leading the engineering team at Quora, doing a ton of work on uh, recommendation systems and other machine learning use cases. Prior to that, he led the machine learning algorithms team at Netflix. Uh, And again, he's currently the co founder of Curai, a startup in the healthcare AI space. Xavier, why don't we just jump right in and have you bring us up to date on uh, Curai and what you're up to
1: there? Sure. Uh, Yeah. So, Curai, uh, we are using state of the art AI and machine learning for a very big and bold mission, which is to Basically, bring the world's best healthcare to everyone. And of course, that is, a, as I said, a very bold and very uh, uh, big mission. And we are making it concrete by basically focusing first on primary care. So we want to bring, bring the cost down of providing good, not good, but best quality healthcare to everyone by using AI and machine learning to bring it down to a place where it can be affordable and it can be scalable, and everyone in the world who has a phone can have sort of like primary care uh, in a very convenient, accessible, and uh, affordable way.
0: And so when you're talking about uh, allowing people to use their phones uh, for primary care, are we talking about like turning your phone into a tricorder or are we talking about using your phone as a kind of a vehicle for accessing human physicians
1: or something in between
0: or something totally different? <laughs> yeah.
1: it, it, it's, it's a combination of, 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 the above and uh, plus uh, something uh, slightly different. But the, the, the realization is that, you know, a lot of what mm, uh, can be solved in, uh, primary care in, um, in healthcare, it really boils down to having conversations between patients and physicians, and of course, providing input to those conversations from different centers and labs and other places, right? But the the core of what happens in any kind of like medical visit is a conversation between the patient and a doctor. And that's the part that can be really um, automated and n- not only automated, but actually uh, brought to a point where it's, uh, it's you can do it from anywhere that you have a phone with um, any kind of um, connection and you can uh, start having a conversation and chatting with a, with a doctor. That's all you need. And of course, there's always there's always going to be things that you can do over the phone. Like you can get your medication over the phone, right? But that's okay because you, we can always deliver medication to your home or we can always always refer you to a lab that is nearby and get the results from the lab and whatnot. But the, the really key issue and the, the part that we're focusing on is in that conversation that happens between patients and doctors. And we have a service where we employ uh, physicians to basically be on the other end of the line to have those conversations. And what we're doing is applying this uh, AI and machine learning approaches to automate as much as possible this uh, conversation so we can augment and scale the doctors. So uh, an important piece here is we're not replacing the doctors with the AI and machine learning. What we're making them is we're giving them, I usually say we're giving them superpowers that uh, in, in instead of being able to see say, uh, 100 patients a day, uh, they'll be able to see 10,000 of the uh, conversations and most of the easy stuff will be handled by the AI and machine learning. And they w- they'll be able to focus only in the places that uh, they're needed the most. Is
0: 100 patients a day a typical metric for a uh, practicing physician?
1: It, it really depends. Uh, in, in primary care, the, the numbers are roughly about mm, the average is i think 12 minutes per patient so uh, you you can it, it depends on on what the the working hours are for for doctors that's actually the, that's in the in the US okay. there are all the places like uh, india for example where it's much less than that and uh, doctors can see way more than a hundred patients in a day. And, and the reality is that they're not even seeing them. The, the nurses are taking care of them before they get to see the doctor, but they, they count as having seen the doctor. So it's, uh, yeah, it's not a, it's not a, um, an, but, but you can, obviously you can imagine that a, a doctor with 15 minutes or less to see a patient and to remember, first of all, the history of the patient, what's going on, ask the right questions, get the right answers, remember uh, everything they know about medical school and come up with a diagnosis and come up with a recommendation, it's really hard for any, um, you know, human being to do that at, at that rate, right? And of course, there's a lot of mistakes and a lot of things that happen because of this. What we're trying to do is say, hey, hand that off as much as possible to the algorithms and the machines and then make sure that when the doctor comes in, they come at the right time and they come at the point where they have all that information laid out for them and they can verify the decisions and make sure that they're saying the right thing. And at the same time, that's what we mean by augmenting, right? The doctors, we, we are uh, of course giving them information that is state of the art and based on real science and they can get that information in a way that they can parse it and they can say, okay, yeah, this is the right decision, uh, I agree. Uh, Instead of sort of like having to deal with all the messiness of gathering that information, parsing it, remembering things, going through the electronic health record, and then making a decision, all of that in uh, less than 15 minutes, right?
0: Now, there are aspects of this that sound uh, very much like, you know, from the the kind of technology I'd expect to see, like uh, other conversational agents where you've got some backend uh resource or, or team that uh you want to uh optimize the use of their time and allow some uh ai system to handle the kind of easy easy responses i've got to imagine that you know things get a lot more complicated uh and and messier different certainly more important and uh, healthcare side of things, can you talk about some of the unique challenges associated with applying this uh, kind of technology in healthcare?
1: Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Uh, there's there's a lot of challenges, and uh, you're right. You could you could think that the you know the typical approach to uh, dialogue systems and all the advances that we're having recently on uh, this kind of uh, chatbots and things like. Uh, Transformers and birds and GPT tools and, and things like that uh, are useful and, and they are. I mean, we are using all of the above in different ways. But the, the the reality is, in a domain like healthcare, medicine, where the stakes are so high, you cannot leave things out to um, you know chance or just to um, a model to uh, rely on 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 this kinds of uh, conversations to actually following the, the right path. And there's a lot of examples out there where you can trick any of these models to say things that seem reasonable uh, for uh, any human being, but they're medically completely wrong, right? And, and, and there's been a, a few examples of that. And, and of course, that's, that's, the, that's the, key, uh, the, the, the key issue that we were tackling with is like, how do we combine prior knowledge about what's correct and incorrect in science and in medicine with some of this automation, right? We do have um, a, a key insight here, and a very important thing of what we're doing is we 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 control the end-to-end, so we have both sides of the conversation. We meaning the uh, patient and the expert, the doctor, right? In this case, so the interesting thing um, in our um, in, in the way that we're applying this technology is that we can deploy. The, the conversation helpers um, in in both ways, right? We can, we can decide to serve something directly to the user if we want to, but we can also serve it to the doctor and uh, you, the doctor can use it as an assistant and make a call whether that makes sense or not if it's being helpful, right? That's a really important thing, right? Because then you go, you're basically walking the line between a chatbot and an assistant, kind of like a Gmail assistant, if you will, when you get an auto response uh, suggestion, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And the doctor can decide, okay, yeah, this makes sense. I'll just take it as it is, or this doesn't make sense. Uh, But they're still sort of like um, making uh, sure that that's medically correct. And at the same time, we are getting uh, training data on how um, our model, uh, the the model that, that we're building, are um, accurate or not, and in what way they are or not. We we have actually um, an upcoming publication in uh, one of the workshops at NeurIPS, uh, which basically talked about this, how to constrain the flexibility of this sort of like deep neural uh, dialogue systems with uh, expert feedback in order to make sure that the information is... um, is that accurate for a domain, particularly in, in medicine in this case. So we need to combine the best of both worlds. And by the way, we, we do the same thing uh, in other parts of our modeling strategies like diagnose, diagnosis. Uh, in diagnosis, we're also combining um, expert systems, which is uh, you know, old school AI with deep learning. And I think um, you cannot rely 100% on, on any of the two. But you get much better if you combine those two uh, strategies in, in some smart ways, which I, th- I think it's a, it's a key insight for medicine, but it's also something that will happen and it's being advocated for by many people in machine learning in general, right? It's like you can't blindly trust models that come only with the, from the data with no prior knowledge or, or some form of knowledge constraints. And a lot of people are trying to figure out, like, how do you combine those two things, right? How do you combine all the power you get from models that are basically just uh, being trained from uh, lots and lots of data with knowledge that we have and structuring that knowledge in some form of prior into the models? Right, right. Uh, That is a theme that continues
0: to recur here uh, on the podcast and in my conversations One interesting thought there is, you know, certainly on the probabilistic side, we've benefited from a huge uh, recent explosion in uh, available tools and, um, you know, algorithms and and the like. Um, You've mentioned a bunch of those already, uh, BERT, et cetera. And, you know, we've got tools like TensorFlow and PyTorch and many, many, many others Um, Whereas expert systems, uh, you know, we think of as kind of a throwback to uh, pre-winter, you know, AI. And I can't think of, uh, you know, not being deep in, in that space. I can't think of kind of what the leading open source expert system software might be? Is there a, a tools ecosystem there or is it, you know, are people building, you know, when people have this realization that they need both and not one or the other, are they kind of building it from scratch? Uh,
1: yeah, I, I don't think there there is such a thing. Uh, I don't think there's a, you know, there, there's a expert system component for TensorFlow or PyTorch. Or should so, there be? Does that make sense? You
0: know, would something like that have
1: benefited you or is it
0: you know is it basically it basically just kind of rules that we know how to code them because you know it's it's not probabilistic
1: not really well, i mean and, and 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 by the way they, they can be probabilistic right at the end of the day what you have with these expert systems is is a graph and then you can do probabilistic inference on the graph and you can do different things on on that graph so mm-hmm. basically uh, i'm thinking a generic tool for expert systems would be uh, uh, rather simple in the sense that all you need is a way to represent uh, sort of like mm, graphs and, and make inferences on the, on those graphs. So it wouldn't be that um, complicated to sort of like have a component for um, TensorFlow or for, uh, for PyTorch that basically does that for you. So the key thing here is uh, those expert systems uh, rely a lot still on sort of like manual labor and, and just to give you an, ex- an example, in the case of some of the expert systems we're using, uh, we're using some that have been developed for over 50 years, right? So there's a, there's a, a couple of uh, expert systems for medical diagnosis that go back 50 years. And we, uh, we're using both of them, actually. Um, and interestingly... Um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of knowledge in there, right? You can think about, you know, 50 years of uh, a bunch of hundreds of uh, really well-trained physicians encoding uh, knowledge and information about medicine in, in a graph, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really valuable. And, and it's really something that if you can then inject it into any learning system, uh, you get a lot, of, a lot from it, right? Um, to your question, there is no, um, you know, there's no tooling for that. Um, on the other hand, you can do interesting things like uh, one of the things we've done is use this expert systems, as a, um, basically a data generator to generate synthetic data and train the learning models from the data that is generated from the expert system, right? That's an example of something that I think is very useful and uh, really, really valuable because then you can you can even merge synthetic data with natural data and you can tweak it in ways that you can uh, learn a model that actually now has some prior knowledge that has been injected in the form of uh, ground truth data, so to speak. Can you speak to that particular point in a little bit more detail? Yeah, sure. Okay, so so in this case, um, the, 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 the thought process was like that, right? Like, uh, we know that, you know, if, if we have very good data and we train a deep lear- learning uh, neural net Uh, we could get sort of like a really high accurate uh, diagnosis system. The reality is that high quality data does not exist. If you go to electronic health records, which we have used ourselves, I mean, we have a a project with Stanford where we have been working with them on using the electronic health records. And this has been something that others have done, like Google and DeepMind and you, you name it. It's like learning uh, predictive models from electronic health records electronic health records the data quality is really really poor notoriously so yes yes and there's a lot of reason for that but one of it is you know uh, they, they they weren't designed uh for the purpose of diagnosis they were designed for the purpose of billing and to make sure the insurance companies got their money back so there's a there's a ton of issues with them um so uh but 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 again that data is valuable it's not like it's totally noise there is something in it so how how can you um generate some kind of data that is more um you know solid and, and sort of like can treat more as a ground truth well you can go to this expert system which again there all they are is you know a graph and you can start activating nodes and generate data from uh that graph that basically becomes sort of um other cases that you use to train your deep learning model. And that's what we, we showed in uh, this, this is a paper we published last year, where we basically generated data from the expert system. Um, We injected noise to that data because an interesting and important thing is you want to train a model that is robust to noise, right? The problem with expert systems, one of the problems, is that they're not capable of dealing with noise. So in other words, if, you know, if the, if the patient doesn't say exactly the symptom they have and they make a mistake because they didn't understand the question or the doctor enters an, uh, a wrong thing, the expert system is, is basically doomed and and, and it was going to give you a, an incorrect output. That's not the case for, you know, you can train um, machine learning models that are, you know, relatively robust to noise because you can even do adversarial training and you can do a lot of different things to make them robust. Um so how do you combine both? Well, you can, you can also uh, inject noise to the expert system. and That's basically what we did. So we generated data from the expert system. We injected different kinds of noise. One example, uh, which I think will be very obvious, is you can inject noise by saying, hey, I'm just going to randomly inject things, symptoms that are very common, right? I'll just add coughing to everything because, you know, coughing is something that People have, in general, no matter whether they have one disease or not, right? It's like it's mm-hmm. you. You always uh, uh, can cough or sneeze or or something like that that is very prevalent and very common. Uh, is is a typical thing and can confuse really confuse an expert system. But it's if you train a, a um, machine learning model on ignoring cough because it's something that is very common and it's not very uh, it's not going to help determine. What the diagnosis is, well, that, then you build a robust model. So um, we again generated synthetic data from from these systems, uh, injected noise in ways that uh, we made the the, the learn model more robust, and we also combined that synthetic data with natural data that we had uh, from EHRs and other sources to also prove that you can you, you you don't need to constrain yourself to just one single kind of data, right? All you need to do is combine it in smart ways to sort of like uh, understand um, because there's there's obviously um, value to training from real world data. Uh, all you need to do is uh, figure out how to combine it with more uh, clean data and and data that you can trust. You mentioned the this kind
0: of injecting noise via adding symptoms that are frequently recurring? What are some other examples of the, the kind of noise that you're injecting? And then more broadly, how do you quantify the, the value of this synthetic data in building out your models?
1: Yeah. Um, so, okay, so the, to the first question, I mean, I think that the the, the key insight to adding noise in a domain like medicine is that you do need you need to have some domain knowledge, right Like when I when I give you the example of adding symptoms that are very common that makes sense, right? because that it makes sense because we know about medicine, like okay, yeah, the explanation makes sense. Uh, another uh, example is like, well, you can remove symptoms that are very rare or are likely to be missed, right? That's another thing that makes sense uh, once you explain it, right? But you need to have some insight, and you need to talk to doctors and that's something we do all the time right uh, this kind of uh, strategies don't uh, come up mm, by you know sheer imagination they come up because we talk to our physicians and we talk to them and say hey what um, how do you deal with these issues where issues that are common and that lead to mistakes in diagnosis how can we make sure that, that our model doesn't make uh, the same mistake so i think that is a, a key uh an important thing is you need to work with domain experts. And that leads me to answer your second question. And, and let me just pause there because that's a kind of an interesting
0: point. I think, you know, when I think of noise, at least from a classical engineering perspective, I think of noise as like this junk that's, you know, uncorrelated from your signal. But what you're suggesting is that at least when you're creating synthetic data your noise needs to be correlated with your actual noise that you need to expect you can't just have you know purely random noise uh, because that won't help your model
1: yeah that's pretty much it <laughs> I mean here it's it's a slightly different right uh, a notion of uh, of noise if you will but um, what, what you have is synthetic data that is strictly um, uh, true, if you will, because uh, true in a scientific sense, because it's been generated by kind of like an expert system that it's been designed on on science. But what you need to do is inject noise that mimics more the reality of nature, right? And, and mm-hmm. the messiness, right? But that noise, yeah, needs to model some of the uh, natural messiness that you see in real life. And you need to Not injected, yeah, it's not white noise in in that sense. It's noise that uh, tries to turn that synthetic data into uh, something that is more real, right? If you think about it, I mean, I use sometimes the metaphor of like the self-driving cars also use synthetic data that is generated from video games. And it's like, well, you can imagine that you were training your uh, self-driving model on um, data from, from Grand Theft Auto but you need to inject, I don't know, uh, fog, and you need to inject rain, and you need to inject things that are not maybe uh, you know, in, the, in your synthetic data, and they're adding noise to the capture of the image, but in a way that mimics real uh, live situations, right? Not just white noise. Mm-hmm. In that sense, it's uh, a bit like the,
0: the concept of domain
1: adaptation? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you could consider it that, uh, that for sure. And, and that's another it is a very important I mean domain adaptation in itself I mean we could go into that it's another important thing that uh, you need to do in many in many cases because and and yeah you you you're right it could be seen as that right because sometimes you are training on ideal data but then you're going to be faced with uh, real life data that it's gonna have to be uh, interpreted in, in the context of the the ideal data that you use for training. So yeah, mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. And, okay. So you're about to
0: take on that second question.
1: Yeah. The second question was about how do you even, you know, how do you know that that uh, that that, that, that yeah, the data is good, or even the model that you're training is good. And and and, and
0: uh, you know, beyond that, the relative advantage of you know, how do you compare with and without uh, using the synthetic data? You know, is it a is it a training time, or is it a you know accuracy, or some combination of all these things?
1: It's mostly about accuracy, right? Um, and and the, the the problem is that the definition of the accuracy is again really tricky and 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 not that obvious, right? Um, accuracy uh, in the context of medical diagnosis is a very very tricky. Um, Thing to define, particularly because you would hope that by asking a physician you would get a ground truth, but that's not the case, right? Uh, there's uh, studies out there, for example, the Human DX project that uh, published uh, some studies that um, the on their data set the average accuracy of a single physician was sixty percent, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really low. <laughs> Now, if you, if you take the consensus of 20 physicians, that got up to uh, over 80 percent, which is much better. But then, of course, you need to have 20 physicians agree and you're still at 80 percent. Which is a lot better, but not necessarily comforting if you're the patient. Exactly. And and, and I think that's, that's a key issue in like what do we treat as ground truth? So, uh, in our case, we, we, I mean, we use a combination of uh, a lot of things. We use a combination of sort of like publicly known data sets, which there's not that many, unfortunately, for, for this uh, domain. And there are just, uh, you know, a few uh, what's called medical vignettes that you can use to evaluate. Um, we also use our own physicians to QA, and we make sure that we have sort of like several of them agreeing on uh, the cases, so we know that, that we're right. And then at the end, it, there's also this kind of like synthetic data, right? It's like uh, you, you need to treat that synthetic data as pseudo ground truth in the sense that, as I mentioned, uh, if you think about it, that, that synthetic data is the result of, as I said before, 50 years of research from hundreds of physicians who have agreed that that's what, um, you know, that particular disease should be defined as. And that's uh, those are the symptoms that are related. So it's it's as good of, as a ground truth as you can get in, in in many other cases, right? So again, it's I wish I had a, a like a, a a great answer for this, but the reality is uh, I don't. It's like it's it's a, it's kind of an iterative process where you like treat one data as a ground truth, but then you compare it to your other data. You you let your physicians go through it and say yeah this is correct or this is not, and then you feed it back and you keep improving both uh, over time. And I think that's uh, that's another very important um, lesson learned here is that you need to design all the systems as uh, really learning systems, right? So it's, it's not only about what's their accuracy today, it's more about how can you make sure that the accuracy and all the other metrics you care about improve over time, right? And in the meantime, the, the 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 important thing is like we always default to humans right it's like we'll always default to a human doctor and improve the model over time and and just tell that human doctor like hey our model thinks that these three things are important you want to consider them and the doctor will say yes or no and it's their call uh, and um, w- you know we'll be as good as the as the doctors are um, but over time we we are pretty sure actually even in our offline, evaluation metrics we think that we're already our models are already at least as good if not better than the average doctor but even with that it's, it's not enough right it's like they need to be better than the best doctor to even uh, <laughs> make it feasible to rely on on them uh, but they're a good assistant and a good augmentation to the uh, human physician for sure do, do you
0: have you made any attempts to benchmark the the third party expert systems with regard to you know <laughs> some elusive metric around accuracy or or um you know I guess the the thought is that you know even if we were confident that each of the In this expert system, you know, was vetted by the 20 doctors or whatever required to, you know, have a a consensus that, you know, has some sufficient level of accuracy. You know, medical perspectives have changed significantly over 50 years. Uh, We may I don't know the extent to which this is tracked in this expert system, but, you know, there are diagnostic practices that apply not equally across different groups of patients so you have all the potential for all kinds of biases within a data set like that have you made any attempt at
1: kind of evaluating that i mean we we are constantly evaluating that with our data but it's really hard to come up with a you know a, something that I, I i i would dare to publish right because it's uh, <laughs> it, it's it's it, it's the problem is the same it's like there is no no ground truth. There, there's a uh, there's a couple of papers uh, on evaluating different systems and different online symptom checkers, and those are the ones that everyone is using as sort of like the the benchmark. And there's a, a paper by uh, Semigram uh, on evaluating symptom checkers, and there's some medical vignettes that she published, uh, which are commonly used by uh, a bunch of people including some like babylon in the uk and so on where they publish things like well we use these vignettes because that's all we have that at least is commonly available and you can benchmark against yeah. but uh, they're far from <laughs> you know something that it's uh, that uh, you could consider sort of like has good coverage of medical conditions and and you can trust as as being comparable but that that being said uh, again I think the, the, the reality is, uh, as, as harsh as it may sound, it's not too hard to be better than the average physician. But uh, again, that's not enough, that's, that's not convincing. Like, if I told you like, oh, I can build a self-driving car that is better than the average teenage driver, would you be okay? Like, well, probably not. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> right, right. because the average teenage driver is not uh, somebody I would trust uh, on a, on an automated uh, driving machine, so I, I think here is it, it's it's pretty much the same. It's, it's it's not about being better than the average doctor. It's about m- being better than the best doctor and being able to augment and always uh, sort of like fall back on mm, humans. Um, and I think that's exactly I I, I like that um, comparison to uh, self driving cars a lot because I think what we're trying to build is not a completely autonomous vehicle, right? We were trying to uh, build this AI automation as an assistant to the driver, just like many cars do right now. But in this case, the driver is an expert who is a physician. Uh, one
0: more question for you. You mentioned earlier that among the techniques that you're relying on, you do make some use of transformers, BERT, GPT-2, that kind of thing. How does that play out in what you're building?
1: Uh, that plays out in, in, in many different ways. I mean, there's, there's a lot of great things about those approaches. The, the one that I think is probably the most relevant in, in our case is the fact that it's transfer, it's, it's all about transfer learning, right? It's Mm -hmm. about um, if you have a great model that has learned in general how to speak, sort of of say, um, you can then fine tune it on some specific domain to become better about speaking about healthcare, right? So a lot of the approaches we take is we look at some of these um, models, we fine tune them on very specific data that we have that is uh, focused on healthcare. And then we can use it to do a bunch of things. I mean, those, the output of those models can be used um, in the context of a chatbot or a dialogue system, but you can also use them to generate features for anything, for a classifier or uh, you name it, right? And I think uh, they, they, because they, 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 build a representation of language in, in, in general, right? So, mm-hmm. so we, we use them um, as inputs to, um, many of the things we do, but more directly, we also use them as, as I was mentioning before, to generate um, assistance to the physicians as they're chatting uh, and they're talking to the patient, right? So if you, if you think about, and that's also, I think I dare to say pretty common in many applications of just customer service in general, like where we're customer service uh, will have sort of like assistance. Actually, uh, there, there are some papers, I think, for example, from Airbnb, where they've, they've done similar things for their customer service, um, where there's basically an assistant that is telling the customer service, um, suggesting things they could say so they can basically accept them or not and decide whether they, they want to type them out or just simply select the, the suggested uh, response. So that's an example where you can almost, you know, you can take uh, one of these models, fine tune it, train it, on, uh, train it on very specific data that it's more healthcare oriented. And you can generate sort of like an assistant for uh, a physician or an expert in any given domain.
0: Well, Xavier, uh, it was Absolutely wonderful catching up with you. Really excited to learn uh, more about what you're up to there at curai and uh, I'll definitely be uh, following along.
1: Okay, yeah, great. I, I would say that many of these things that we've uh, have mentioned, we we are publishing, and we are uh, um, we have I think four papers in this uh, machine learning for healthcare workshop at NeurIPS, and if people are interested in following up on some of the details of how we use this. Uh, transformer models or how do we uh, do diagnosis and so on, that's all. I mean, they can go to Archive and and find more details on some of these techniques and how we're using them and uh, trying to solve sort of like this huge uh, healthcare problem access. So, yeah. Fantastic. We'll, uh, We'll include
0: some links to those papers on Archive in the show notes.
1: Great. So great talking to you. Thank you.